Hello everyone and welcome back to the Marketing Mashup podcast. I'm very pleased to have you here. In this episode, I'm joined by Patrick Campbell, who is the CEO of ProfitWell. Patrick blew my mind with the talk about SaaS pricing back at Inbound 19 last year. From then, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. For those that don't know, ProfitWell is a subscription software that helps subscription businesses with the hard parts of growth. They're also prolific at creating content, which I get into a little bit in this episode. I talked to Patrick about what content works well, why it works, and how they've even managed to get their video content production cost for a full series down to less than the cost of an ebook. We also get his thoughts on choosing the right content formats and if he thinks daily vlogging can work for B2B. We cover some ground on pricing, how you should do it right, including common mistakes and his favorite pricing pages. Oh, and we discuss why they have a swag strategy. Before we dive into this episode, I'd just like to quickly say this podcast is supported by my own company, Streetco, where we help content marketers get their podcasts off the ground. If you're looking to start a podcast or if you're interested in how to do it, go to streetcopodcast.com forward slash launch and you can use the code marketing mashup for 25% off your first order. Links in the show notes too. Anyway, let's get into this fantastic episode. Patrick, I gave you a little intro there, but can you give me a little whistle-stop tour of your career to where you are now with ProfitWell? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. And um, I can. So I, I, my background's in econometrics and math. Uh, so I started, I started my career actually working in, in uh, U.S. intelligence in D.C. Uh, then I worked at Google. Um, and as you kind of mentioned, both very bureaucratic environments, um, great environments. Um, you know, working at NSA was one of the most fulfilling jobs and experiences I think I'll ever have in my life, but um, wanted to, to kind of get, get closer to the rail of, of the decision making. And so started a company about eight years ago. And uh, it's been, it's been an up and down roller coaster ever since. But yeah, at this point, um, you know, the big things, we have a suite of products that you kind of mentioned. We focus on subscriptions specifically, and we have about 20% of the entire subscription market uh, using one or more of our products, which we're, we're super excited about. That's amazing. So t- tell me more about Profit Lowers and, and what you guys do specifically. Yeah. So we have, we have a couple different products. Uh, so our core kind of product that most people know us for is um, ProfitWell Metrics. So you plug it into your uh, billing system. So Zora, Stripe, Recurly, Chargeify, Chargebee, Braintree, whatever you're using, we basically give you access to your, your, all of your financial metrics and we calculate and do all the hard work of getting those to be 100% accurate. Uh, so you get your MRR, your cohorts, your churn, um, and it's all for free. Uh, so we give this away completely for free. And then uh, we actually, you know, we enrich your data with Clearbit and Full Contact for free. So you can do all kinds of segmentation. Um, and we give that away for free for a couple of reasons. But one of, one of the biggest reasons is because um, pricing an analytics product is really hard. Uh, people don't like paying for analytics. They don't like paying for BI tools. Um, they do at some point, but then they're very, very expensive. And so um, we found that um, there, was, there was a better path to monetization for us. And, and that's our other products where um, with the free product, we can show you where you have problems and you can get a ton of value. So you feel a little bit, uh, um, you feel a little bit uh, ob- obligatory, a little bit of an obligation to talk to us about our, our paid products because you're getting so much value. And then our paid products, we have one that helps reduce your churn automatically, one that optimizes your pricing. And then we have a couple of others that, that kind of focus on other parts of, of subscriptions. What, what made you start ProfitWell back in, back in 2012? And going bootstrap, was that, a, was that a, 
an, an active decision or is that something that's just happened? Are you looking to fund in the future? So I, I think it was, I mean, what made me start it was like pure hubris. Uh, so I, <laughs> I ended up working. Uh, so again, I was at Google and um, this was after leaving NSA because it was, I like talking about my job. And obviously when you work in US intelligence, you can't really talk about your job. Um, and I also like, um, you know, if, if there's something to be done, you know, as a young punk kid, and I'm still kind of a punk kid, you know, I want to like get it done, right? I don't want to have to wait 18 months um, to get something done. It doesn't mean that I can't be patient, but if, if I felt, and this is where the hubris comes in, if I felt the patience wasn't warranted, um, I would, I would, I would be like, oh man, like, I don't want to, like something's in my way. Right. And so um, I thought Google was going to be a lot better, but you know, it was there when it was 30,000 people. So it doesn't really you know, matter it's 30,000 people. And so, um, jumped out and, um, yeah, I think, um, I was working at a startup in between Google, Google and starting ProfitWell. And I was given as this kind of entry level plus kid, like I wasn't, you know, an exec by any means. I wasn't a manager. Um, I was kind of like a special projects guy and I was given pricing for the first time. And that's where I, you know, noticed that, oh, if you make these little changes based on the data, you can get big swaths of revenue or big craters of revenue. And it's, it's one of those things where um, that's, you know, that's kind of interesting, right? Uh, and so I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm not as enamored with this company as, as I thought I was. You're starting to see a theme here. Um, and so I said, okay, cool. Like, let me jump out. And, you know, if there's a time to start anything, um, the time is now. I was 25, you know, no kids, no, no obligations, anything like that. Um, and then basically, you know, cashed in my, my 401k. It was like, hey, you know, and it was like 10 grand, which 10 grand in Boston is not a lot of money. Um, and I just kind of gave myself six to nine months. And in terms of bootstrapping, I, it wasn't, bootstrapping was actually kind of frowned upon, you know, that all that time ago, eight years ago, because you know, I heard a lot of, oh, this is, this means you can't raise money. And I know people wouldn't say that to my face, but I would hear that kind of in the background. Um, and in actuality, it was just our customers, you know, our price was high enough that we could kind of bankroll the business with our own customers. And so, um, and being a first time founder, you know, I had that naivete of, you know, oh yeah, like, I don't know how to raise money. So I'm going to do the thing that seems easier, which is like build the business um, rather than go out and like raise cash. And so I don't have anything against investors. We'll probably raise investor or investment at some point. Um, it's just right now we, we thankfully and knocking on wood here, we can, you know, be a $10 million um, 80 person company without needing to, to raise investment, which um, we're, we're pretty proud of. But again, we don't have a chip on our shoulder. Back in 2012, what was the market like for startups and your one in particular? And how did you get your first customers? The market wasn't, it was kind of, we were on like the tail end of the, well, I mean, it depends on who you ask. If you ask a true economist about the 2008 recovery, like the 2008 recovery took a long, a lot longer than four years. But in 2012, it was, it was very, um, um, you know, it was, it, it was great in Boston, especially because the, the market there was, there were multiple waves. A lot of people don't know that Boston's actually consistently second to Silicon Valley in terms of investment. Um, Boston was Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley existed just because, you know, in a very different scale, but Route 128, which is kind of what people refer to, was like all the old school, like first software companies coming out of MIT and Harvard um, until they moved to better weather on the West Coast. But um, it, there was this wave basically that, you know, people were starting to like share a lot more and like help the up and coming companies. And so for me, 
it was a fantastic environment because I was getting so much help that, you know, I, I felt so indebted to. Um, but I think from a, from a market perspective, um, you know, we saw just tons of like people were, you know, there, there were big valuations then there was, you know, money was fairly plentiful, not as plentiful as it is, as it is now, even in the midst of the COVID crisis. Um, but it was, it was a great, it was a good up and coming market because 2008 had happened, a bunch of people then entered the market. And then there was this slow build, you know, in 2012 and beyond um, to, to kind of get to, to where we still are. Like we're still not below, you know, where we were, you know, back then, which is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it was an interesting time back then and it's uh, an interesting and potentially worrying time at the moment. Now, I want to be context aware of of what's going on at the moment because we're recording this on the 20th of April and the, the majority of the world has been in lockdown for the past few months. Uh, in the UK, we've been hit quite badly, but in the US, you guys have been absolutely slammed by the coronavirus. Um, uh, how, how has it impacted you and your business? so far yes we have we have the actual data on this which is kind of cool not only for the market but us individually individually i mean we've seen sales um uh basically go like go up in certain places sales go down in certain places our sales cycle has been um lengthened so i would say that it's impacted us but it hasn't like we feel very blessed because it hasn't impacted us like most companies, which is really, really good. Um, so we've definitely reforecasted 2020. Um, we've done a whole host of like stopgap measures and things like that internally, like cutting some, you know, some obvious costs and things like that. But what's been really fascinating is looking at the market data because since we're sitting on, you know, 20% of the market, we can actually study a lot of like what's going on in the market. And, and what's been kind of fascinating is we've been able to look at um, essentially the world of B2B has actually not been hit that hard. Um, and this is because of annual contracts. It's because of a whole host of things. And B2B is typically a second, second order impact industry. Uh, but it's basically flattened, which isn't great, but isn't bad. The world of D2C and literally anything that has to do with going outside has just gotten slammed, as you can imagine. And so um, we've been pretty good, but we've been very, uh, very promised uh, uh, or very, we've seen the data that's been very promising, and I think it's going to get probably a little worse before it gets better. But it, it's you know we're kind of over the the, the big hit. Um, there'll be smaller hits, I think, as a, as a business individually, and as as obviously as a um, as an industry, you know, as time goes on. Now, on April 9th, you announced the subscription stimulus, um, which is obviously related to the crisis we're going through. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're offering there and why you decided to do it? Yeah, 100%. So um, we serve subscription businesses of all kinds, right? And they're, they're you know, B2B companies who are doing insanely well. Um, you know, there are some D2C or B2C companies, depending on how you define it, they're doing terribly and then everything in between, right? And so we, we knew this was having an impact on subscriptions in general. And um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to do what, what we could do best because there were these government stimulus um, coming out and we thought, Hey, what about a you know stimulus for you know the rest of us, as they say, right? Um, and so what we ended up doing is we we would have loved to like if we just had like ten million dollars in float, um, it would have been amazing if we could actually spin up a little bit of a debt fund or something like that, um, and, and kind of put it out there for like decent terms. But you know we're bootstrapped and and we're growing, and so we kind of like run things close to the rails, and so we couldn't necessarily do that. So we thought, what was the next best thing? Well. We can find partners who we, we have all these relationships with. You know, we can we can get them to to give up 
um, some pretty steep um, discounts or promotions. And then we can give folks, you know, up to 10% of their recurring revenue um, in these different promotions and things like that to help them with products they're already using so they can get a break on those products um, or like new products to help them, you know, Hey, I had to, you know, cancel this product cause it was way too much, but I need a replacement for it. Here's a cheaper option um, or at least an option that's, that's going to help me, you know, through the next three to six months. And so um, it was, it was not only giving up to 10% of, you know, folks's MRR um, in, in software, but also um, giving people a community and a place where they can like see this data. Um, so they can kind of like either calm down, which is mostly what needs to happen um, or like freak out a little bit if they're, if they're thinking everything's normal. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a program that we launched and um, I think we've given away uh, 15 million so far. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, and we took out a couple of big outliers cause there was a couple of big outliers that like would have juiced the numbers a little bit too much, but Cause like, you know, imagine we have fortune 50 companies on ProfitWell. And so if they come for 10%, that's a lot of money. So yeah, it's one of those things that that's worked out really, really well. Yeah. Well, props to you for, for sticking your neck out there and doing that. Um, I'm sure a lot of companies very much appreciate it. Now we've also been hit with a big change, which is everyone's gone gone remote now i listened to another podcast you were on where you were saying re- remote work isn't particularly in profit world's dna it's not something that isn't you're not anti remote work but it, it's something you've that doesn't particularly work that well for you so how, how have you found going fully remote um for the time being yeah i think i mean i'm you know data suggests that it's actually um, it's not hard to grow, but it's harder to grow. It's hard to grow no matter what you're doing, but it actually can be harder to grow if you're remote in the early days. I think that what we found um, for us personally, and this is why like, I think remote is we're too religious about it. There's people who are like very like, oh my God, remote is the future. Remote is everything, which they're not wrong. It's definitely true. It's just how long of a future is that? And then there's people who are like so anti-remote. And I think it's like, you know, it's like freemium and bootstrapping and some of these things. It's just like the the answer is really somewhere in the middle. Like it's more just like, hey, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And I think for us, um, we know that to be a billion dollar company, we need to be a multi-product company um, and to be a multi-product company that comes with a bunch of challenges, right? And so we need, you know, there's a lot of surface area from a product perspective. There's a lot of surface area from a go-to-market perspective. And we're not, you know, sitting on $30 million in cash in our balance sheet. So the long and short of it is, is I think that for us, remote has always been something where we've been, you know, said, hey, we can, you know, do some work from home. We can do some, you know, some, some, you know, definitely something that helps with some folks who work really well at home, but we, we're not a fully remote company and we're, we're probably not going to be in the near future. So work from home was a, a bit of a, a jump for us. I mean, thankfully we have multiple offices, Boston, Salt Lake and Rosario, Argentina. And so we kind of had the basic infrastructure, you know, Slack, documentation, Notion, Zoom, these types of things. But I think that a lot of us are kind of missing humans. Uh, we're missing, you know, kind of the office, like a lot of folks, uh, independent of where they work. And I think that, um, you know, we've, we've noticed some, some things that like just collaborating on some, let's say higher order, um, thought projects is a little bit harder. So we've, we've deprioritized some of those, um, to focus on some more mechanical pieces. And, and I think this has also accelerated us in a good way to, it's a good forcing function for us to get some of our basics together. Oh, we don't have documentation for that. 
oh, we haven't done that training. Well, we didn't necessarily need those as much because we were all sitting next to each other, sitting closely together. Now it's like, oh yeah, we should have that. And we should have had it already, but this is a nice forcing function to kind of, you know, get it, get it kind of documented. In terms of your content production, because I know we'll, we'll touch upon this later in, later in the episode, but you, you create a lot of content, a lot of video content, which you need to be, generally you need to be in a place to do it. How have you adapted creating content? Yeah, so content's been a little tougher because normally, um, so for folks who, who don't know, we, we actually run essentially our content like a media network. So we have multiple different shows. Um, you know, there's a show called Pricing Page Teardown where we, you know, go through a bunch of pricing pages and things like that. Um, we have shows like um, Protect the Hustle, which is like a podcast kind of series. So we have a lot of different like series and a lot of those we were filming in person. Um, so that's been affected a bit, but I think that the, the big thing is that thankfully we had the right framework in place um, for being able to like create content. And so we've kind of just taken some of that online. So, um, you know, recording some podcasts last week, um, just getting that stuff ready to go so that we can kind of keep things moving. And then we've also adapted um, to some of the, the things that we kind of were um, uh deprioritizing already because we were working on some bigger projects. Um, these were things like uh, cutting up our content for social, these types of things. Um, we've started to basically just take that stuff on and, and kind of, a, um, you know, accelerate that. So um, yeah, content's a big piece of, of our business. And, and I think that most of the time, like what we've been able to do is just adapt it and kind of lean in more into our content side just because people are craving information like the index that we're publishing and, you know, the stimulus package and things like that. I see. Definitely. Um, let's move on a little bit from remote. Um, in terms of the content you're making, I guess now would be a good time to talk about it. Why is it you started to invest in content marketing so heavily? And when did you, when did you start? Was it right from the offset in 2012? I know inbound marketing was very much a thing at that point. So why is it you started investing in it so heavily? The shortest answer is we ended up having a free HubSpot account. So it was kind of like this path of least resistance. So it was, it was, it was one of these things where we went, okay, so you know, we're trying to figure out X, Y, Z. Uh, what should we do to get customers? Oh, well, let's try this inbound marketing thing, right? Because in 2012, like a lot of people don't realize like inbound marketing content, it, it, ha it was kind of this niche. Like you're still convincing people that SEO was a thing, right? Not like people who relied heavily on SEO, but just mostly just convincing people, right? And so I think what was really powerful about that was we were in a space and I, I don't think we were as conscious about this uh, in, in foresight. I think in hindsight, it made sense where people don't know a lot about pricing. They don't know a lot about their metrics. They don't know a lot about churn, especially in 2012. And so anything we put out, even if it was the most basic thing ever, people are like, oh my gosh, this is great, right? Because in, in the hardcore pricing people would be like, oh, this is the simplest thing ever, duh. And everyone else who we were selling to was like, oh my God, this is amazing. How do we get more help? How can we do X, Y, Z, et cetera? So um, yeah, I think that that's, that's been, um, you know, that's been super powerful. It's been good just to kind of figure out like, you know, that content was powerful for us. And then, you know, as we just kind of kept moving forward, we have a product that is kind of like pet insurance. I don't know like pet, how pet insurance is in the UK or in Europe, but 10 years ago in the States, pet insurance, if, if you weren't told about it, or you're, you weren't like convinced or you hadn't purchased it before, 
you, you would have no concept of it, right? Now in the States, you don't even imagine having a dog without pet insurance or for the most part, right? Um, but for us, it was, you know, pricing and retention, unfortunately, it's one of those things that has such an impact on revenue, but people just don't really think about it because all they're doing is spending more and more money on um, acquiring customers. And so we, in this kind of unique environment, um, we were basically like, cool, well, let's go and, you know, just kind of, um, you know, move forward with making sure that we are, um, you know, we are kind of educating the market and getting as much content out there so that we can reach as many people as possible and they can understand, you know, the value that, that we can provide. Now, Patrick, you, you mentioned pricing page teardown, which is, which is a fa- fantastic, fantastic bit of content. But what, what made you think that there would be so many people so interested in <laughs> pricing content because if if you'd have said that to me five years ago i, I would have thought you're, you're absolutely bonkers for creating just pricing content but you, you've got super fans of this stuff i mean i watch it, i absolutely love it i don't even have a subscription product what what, <laughs> may, what, what, what when did you start to see people really engaging in this really niche type of content and why why do you think it works so well i mean there was a bit of a bet there i think that we we essentially we wanted to figure out how we could scale content in an easier way and so um, there, there was a bunch of inputs that went into that. And what we discovered is that um, the price to create like an ebook, like a good ebook, not just a PDF of a blog post, but something that's actually like solid, um, that price or that cost um, was basically the same as a series or a season of a show. So like 10 to 13 episodes, depending on the show. And some were much cheaper and some were going to be much more, more expensive. And so it was one of those things where we kind of looked at it and we said, okay, well, if we do this, no one's doing series. We have a lot of data that suggests this is what we should be doing because content's getting harder and harder to stand out. And we want to create a brand similar to like Bloomberg and you know all these other folks out there, right? Now HubSpot was able to do that because they just wrote SEO. HubSpot's SEO is insane. You should look at HubSpot versus Marketo and any of the publicly available, um, available tools. Like HubSpot is synonymous with inbound marketing because they just own every term, right? Now for us, it was, well, SEO isn't a huge thing for our industry. We're going to do everything we can to own it, but how do we start like getting people who are, you know, kind of brandy, you know, in terms of, you know, our audience. And so, um, yeah, we, we started with pricing based teardown because we had seen some teardown series of other folks work in the past. Um, and we just went for it. Right. Um, so I don't, you know, there's not like a beautiful, this is the perfect look at like how we instantly knew this. Um, but we also thought, okay, well, if a hundred people watch each episode and one of those converts, it's so much worth the time still and so much worth the effort. Um, so there's a lot of hedge thinking, which is dangerous thinking, but we've done a lot of hedge like thinking in order to, to get to this point, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And just then you're talking about the average cost of an ebook um, is equivalent to the cost of producing the series. On um, Wistia's brand wagon, which you're on episode seven of, I believe, you mentioned the cost around 10,000, but you can make a video series for even less than that. How do you, how do you create a video series so, so cheaply? What have you done to ensure that you're efficient in producing a video series like that? There's a couple of things. So one, um, the easiest thing is we don't look at things as like a one week after one week after a one week process. Look at things as a season. So we film a season in one or two days. 
Um, so we don't like do it every week. Um, there's some things that, and, and we've always looked at it as a forcing function and, and how do we hedge, right? So we have a daily show now. Um, and that was a forcing function to figure out like, how do we produce this content? Like that's recent, you know, like news and things like that. Very, very recent. Whereas when we started, it was like, how, how do we create like a, a, a quarter's worth of content essentially, um, that we can kind of go after. And so the long and short of it is, is that we, um, we just started thinking and, and really writing down all of the things that contributed to costs and then tried to batch them as much as possible. And really why we shot a season in a day is, is because setup and teardown of a studio, that can be an hour to 90 minutes each episode if you broke it down. And so we looked at it and we're like, well, there's 90 minutes on both sides and you multiply that by 13 episodes. That's a lot of time and a lot of money, right? Let's just do it once, right? And there, there's no recency that's needed with, um, with the Pricing Page Teardown show. Um, and some of our other shows, there's no recency needed either. So yeah, the long and short of it is, is we just looked at all of those different things and started to break them down. And you know, there's some of our series that are um, basically, they're, they're not only, they're scripted um, and, and basically we use a teleprompter with them, but they, they're, they're like just one shot like type pieces. So all of a sudden it's like, all that's scripted, which means we have the blog post. The blog post is just the script. Um, we have the data for it. We have the, the video for it. We have the audio for it. And we're able to just kind of break things down in a really, really clean way. So yeah, it just came, just came down to like thinking scalably. And, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the book High Output Management, which has nothing to do with video series or content, but it has to do with like thinking through the different pieces of things that are needed, you know, for a system of, of, of work essentially. And that's, that's what helped a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if if you're if you've nailed down the efficiency of creating this content, you've still got to get people to watch it. Uh, you still got to get people to consume it. How do you make sure you're distributing the content to the right people and make sure you get an eyeballs on it? Yeah. So this is the hard part, um, and I and we are not good at this yet. I think that what we did is um, we did very much like if we build it, they will come. And the problem with that is is that no, there's a lot of people have no idea what we do. <laughs> they have no idea what we do. They have no idea why we have this content, and that's fine. But this is where like this year um, was really focused on. Okay, now that we have this base, you know, we, we can make a daily show, we can make a, a quarterly show, we can do whatever we need to do. Like we wanted to focus on two things. One, distribution. So um, we have an audience growth manager that we finally hired um, and she's been doing some fantastic work there. Um, but two, like go after like a very high quality Wistia level show, which I don't think we've produced yet. And, and that was kind of the focus. Then all of a sudden COVID hit. Um, and so it's some of these like number two has kind of been pulled back a little bit um, towards the tail end of the year, hopefully. But the short answer to your question is, is just following best practices around having people sign up, doing email marketing, these types of things. Um, and then a lot of it's been spread just kind of organically, which has been great. I think that we want to kind of focus on like, how do we, it doesn't sound great, but like, how do we grow inorganically, I guess? But it's one of those things that I think just the quality of the content, the targeting of the audience, and also just the acceptance of, we're not trying to get, you know, a, a million people to watch Pricing Page Teardown. We care about, hey, we got, you know, 10,000 people an episode. That's insane, right? That's like a fantastic number that we're totally comfortable with. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people are attracted to trying to get the, the biggest numbers possible. Um, I, I know my boss is coming from consumer, um, consumer marketing. So he, he wants everything to go viral. Whereas uh, it, it's trying to educate 
uh, educate people on if you've got 10,000 people watching a video about a pricing page, that's 10,000 people who are potentially in your target market who will potentially buy your products because they're specifically interested in what that one particular thing. Um, how, how do you pick ideas for different bits of content? Do you sort of brainstorm and write down 50 ideas and pick a few out that you think might, um, might convert well or are easy to produce? Yeah. So what we typically do is we focus in on, um, so a lot of the content creators, they don't necessarily have the SaaS knowledge um, or the, you know, subscription market knowledge, which is fine. And so what we end up doing is we basically go, okay, cool. Well, in that case, um, you're really good at consuming content. Therefore, what are all the formats you see, right? So if they like, if they watch a lot of sports programming, what are the formats that they're finding around sports? If we're watching a lot of like um, e-network or, um, you know, TMZ, like what are the formats that work there? Because all of those formats um, can be applied to different types of content, right? So I can take a format of like, um, there's this, uh, the example I always like to use, there's this, um, um, I can't use it, I think, cause we're gonna, I think we're gonna use it ourselves. But there's, okay, so here there's like, there's like the skim or which are these daily news, news things, right? That's a format, right? We can apply that format to our space and then make it different enough that people wanna look at it um, and people are consumed by it. So. Yeah, long story short, it's 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 finding those formats and then applying them in different places. Yeah, um, I, I think I think you're absolutely right there, picking up on what what other people are, are doing. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on daily vlogs? There are a few companies I know that have done this, tried it, have been successful, and others that haven't been so successful. Obviously, Gary V um, made this very popular with his having a videographer follow him around. Um, as you said, in in <laughs> in Brown Wagon, you might need an aspirin after watching him. The Goat Agency, they're an agent, influencer agency here in London, do a daily vlog, and it's absolutely fantastic. And Aaron Shepard, who's been on the podcast, has said how much benefit that's had for them. But Social Chain are another agency that tried it and have since stopped doing it. So what are your thoughts on daily vlogging as a, as a format? I don't know if I have a strong opinion on it. I think that B2B companies would benefit immensely from doing daily vlogs. I think that they don't have the muscle um, to do it though. So, so here's what I mean by that. So like, it's not just about like, if, if you're doing a daily vlog, having a random marketing manager do the daily vlog isn't necessarily the most high impact thing right? Like it's great for brand. It's great for like bringing people in, but you actually might erode your brand a little bit because frankly, and this is going to be probably a little controversial. If you have like some, you know, 20 year old kid, um, and I was a 20 year old kid not that long ago. So I'm not like, you know, deriding folks. It's just more like if you have a 20 year old kid and you're selling to, you know, your average age of your customers, like 55, it, it, it just gets a little bit, it gets a little bit off and disconnected where you might get the wrong type of traction. And so I think that what, what, um, in addition to that, the people you want to show off, let's say your executives, they just might not be interesting people. They might not be charismatic, right? And so what you need to do and what I would suggest doing for, for B2B brands is finding the format, finding the format and finding the script that will keep people entertained and also informed. So that might be as simple as, all right, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interview you. Like you can't see me on the camera. I can only see you and you're kind of looking off or something like a very traditional documentary interview. And it's literally just 
questions, questions for James. And I'm just asking you, James, tell me about this. And then I have a follow-up question. And like, I'm asking you things where you get a little fired up and you're able to like really emote a little bit um, in a good way for your brand. And then I'm going to chop that up and I'm going to put that into, um, to, into an episode, right? Or it might be something where like, I need a very tight script that has some looseness so you can respond to things. But because like, you're not the most charismatic person in the world, I have to edit around you, which is fine. That's great, right? But I think that that's, that's where you should focus. And I think- most folks who have a daily vlog, they typically have someone who is either really, really good at editing um, and good scripting, which means like a very kind of Casey Neistat style blog where it's a lot of like in-between stuff. It's like a narrative over the top. Or you have someone who's like extremely charismatic, like a Gary Vee, um, you know, and it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just like Gary Vee, you can't deny that this guy's got like some, some charisma power, right? And so I think that that's, that's probably the wrong way to look at it. I would look at it as like, what's something that your team or the people who are important can do on a daily basis to attract eyeballs? It doesn't have to be a vlog. Cause like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't think people are that interested in what we do at ProfitWell. Or if they are, they're not interested to watch every single day um, or it's the wrong type of people. Like a, we're selling to 10,000 employee companies. There's nothing that I can say to a 10,000 employee company about the inner workings of ProfitWell that's probably going to keep them captivated and teaching them something on every single day, every every day basis. So what I need to do is I need to focus on, you know, what I can provide them, which is like SaaS data, pricing information, these types of things. So, sorry, ranting a little bit. Uh, my buddy Jay Akunzo and I, we talk about this all the time where it's just people... They, they, they see David Dobrik or they see something and like, oh, let's do that for business. Yeah. And it's like the worst decision for them. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And you, you mentioned, was it Jay Akunzo you just mentioned? Yeah, we worked at Google together um, back in the day. And so, uh, yeah, I've known Jay a long, I've known Jay over a decade now, which is pretty wild. He, he's incredible. I, I, um, I absolutely love the blog um, and the content he's making. I also really, really, he, he produced one of my favorite podcasts ever which was um which i think was on the drift the drift feed oh what was it called yeah that was uh exceptions or exceptional or something yeah yeah like that. That, that, that's one i'll, yeah. I'll try to put a link in the show notes but i thought that was amazing because you really dug into um how successful b2b marketers did their marketing um so patrick fantastic to talk to you a little bit about content let's let's um let's touch a little bit on your bread and butter pricing what is the biggest mistake you think people make when it comes to pricing? How should companies that are trying to figure out their pricing or improving it, how should they approach it? Yeah. So biggest mistakes, um, biggest mistakes is always tough, right? Cause you got to boil everything down to one thing. So let me give you like two, maybe three. I think one of the biggest mistakes is just stagnation. Um, if you are a growing company, meaning if your product is improving, you know, even a, a small amount every single quarter, um, your pricing should be updated every single quarter. Now that does not mean raise your price every quarter. Everyone, whenever I say that, they think that, oh, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's not what I'm saying because pricing and monetization is so much more than just the number that you're charging. Um, it's like how you charge, it's, you know, what you include in each tiers, these types of things. So the first thing is just stagnation. Um, the average company is not updating their pricing once, but every three years. Um, which is insane. Um, the people who are getting the most gains from monetization um, are basically, um, 
you know, updating something about their pricing, either on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. Again, there's a lot of different things you can update that have nothing to do with the actual core price point. Um, you know, monetization is much deeper. I think the second thing is um, not really understanding what monetization is, and I'm kind of already alluding to that. So what I mean by that is, um, you've created some sort of value. doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit, doesn't matter if you're a B2B SaaS company, doesn't matter what you're doing. You've created a value. And then because we don't trade goats for wheat anymore, you're basically like, cool, here's this dollar amount or Euro amount or some sort of monetary amount that equates to that value. Right. And so when you start to think about it, what pricing is really about is how do you continually increase the amount of dollars or euros or whatever per customer, your ARPU, your ACV um, that you're getting, right? And, and you have to back that value up with actual value. It's not like you can have the exact same product and the exact same mindset and just keep raising the price on people. It's not how it works. But I think that's, that's a really, really big thing. And then the final piece I would say from, from a really big screw ups is it's gotta be customer focused. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, they go, oh, let's, let's go with my, what my competitors are doing. Well, your competitors haven't updated their pricing in three years and they're not doing their research either. So why would you copy their homework? They're, they have the wrong answer probably as well, right? And we always overestimate how like competitive we actually are in our markets. Um, and then some of the other things are, um, we, you know, you have to price based on value basically, which is, you know, understanding what that customer's perception or that target customer's perception. There's a bunch of ways you can do that. And then price based on that because you know, your customers also don't give a you know, give two hoots about your, you know, costs. They care about their costs, right? So yeah, value-based pricing is really, really where it's at. And uh, how do you, in terms of tactically, how, how do you make sure your pricing is customer-focused? Do, do, you, do you ask them? Did the customers know what they would pay or how, how would you go about that? Yeah, it's, it's a huge... It's, it's, it's a huge undertaking in a podcast format because I want to show you. I can, tell, I can explain it to you in 10 minutes, but it would just be hard within a podcast. So here's what I would say. There are a bunch of ways that you can talk to your customers about pricing and your target customers, right? So if we're trying to determine what is the, what is the right price, like the actual physical price point, I'm going to go talk to people who have never heard of me, um, but our target customers. I'm going to go talk to people who are um, you know, current customers. I'm going to talk to prospects who aren't paying me yet. And I'm going to compare all their answers to these questions. And it's not about going to them and saying, hey, how much are you willing to pay? It's a really hard question for human beings to answer um, just cognitively. And so there's a bunch of things that you have to do to, to, to basically um, you know, almost dance around it, but still directly go to your customers for this information. Um, but that's really what it comes down to is value-based pricing is go talk to your customers um, determine what they value, how much they value it and everything in between. And then, you know, pops out with, okay, so this is what that's saying. This is what our competitors are doing. This is what our costs are doing. We're going to weight that value-based data a lot more, but you know, this is how we should move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've got loads of content on your site, so I'll make sure I pick out a few, a few good articles and leave those in, in the show notes. Um, with price and page dare down, you've looked through a ton of price and pages. In your opinion, what one stands out the most to you off the top of your head? Mm. So of the teardowns, um, it's super hard because it depends on your product, right? So like, you know, I think the, the Slack one is really, really good if you're a B2B company. Um, we did one that didn't get as much because it was very kind of generic. We did one on coffee that I thought was really good if you're in like the D2C space. Um, yeah, and then we did one on even, um, we, we did one kind of compare, we've done a lot of like comparisons. 
Um, so Hims versus Roman, which are these new um, pharmaceutical companies in the States. I don't know if they're in the Europe quite yet. Um, and then we've done a bunch of like, you know, Zendesk versus, you know, Help Scout, these types of things. So yeah, those are a couple that I think I would check out um, that'll give you a good framework for, for, for understanding things. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, again, I'll, I'll, I'll leave links to those. What, what makes Slack was the one that came to my mind too. What, what makes that stand out specifically? Uh, those episodes? Yeah. I think they just go through the fundamentals. I think most folks, they just don't understand the fundamentals because, you know, unless you, you know, even if you got your MBA, you probably only took one class on monetization. And even then it was all theory. Right. And so I think that the fundamentals of just like, Hey, this isn't hard. This isn't like an insane problem. Um, it's just one of those things that, um, you know, you just have to apply the thinking you have for every other problem in your business to pricing. And so it just gives people the confidence of like, Oh, I can go do this. I can look at it this way. I think those episodes do that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Now I'm, I'm going to, going to bring us to a close with uh, a, a few more questions. We've talked about, spoken about content, remote work, pricing. You've been absolutely fantastic. Um, but I noticed you tweeted uh, not too long ago that you gave up email for four weeks. Now, Patrick, is this true? Did you actually give up email for four weeks? Uh, not like intentionally. It wasn't like a screw email or anything like that. It was more, um, you know, email just became basically the, the lowest priority thing. And I would like scan it in case there was anything <laughs> very priority. But yeah, I basically gave up emails for four weeks and then my inbox had like 1400 and most of those I needed to actually answer or give to someone. So um, yeah, it was interesting. I think, I don't know. I think that it's, this is, I'm not the first one to say this. I think that it's a very common thing to get caught up in um, working for the business versus on the business. And what I mean by that is for the business is like triaging emails, answering emails, getting it off, doing this, doing that. Whereas like on the business is like, oh, we need to like do this contingency plan or we need to like come up with this memo or this like thought work or these types of things. Um, and I think it's really dangerous when, you know, you just get into these grinds of like, oh, I'm just reacting to everything that's happening because you're not actually making moves forward. So for those four weeks, I had a lot of work to just like, get stuff done which you know thankfully worked out really well yeah definitely and then in with your brown brown wagon episode which i mentioned a few times the t-shirt you were wearing was a profit well one with an astronaut on it well what, what, <laughs> what's the story behind that patrick around that t-shirt yeah. um i actually couldn't that one is one of our shirts from sas doc um which is the european uh big sas event um, but we try to like, so I think swag is not the highest priority for your marketing, but like, just to be super clear, but if you're going to do swag, it should, it should like stand out or it should, you know, advance your, your mission. Right. So we, we have a very like clear events, um, strategy that we've had to like obviously table with all the COVID stuff. But what we ended up doing, um, is basically we ended up every event we try to have like new swag and we try to make sure that we, you know, only print enough for that event. And so that was, that was one of them for actually it might've been for Sastra. I can't remember if that was for Sastra or SAS stock, but it was for one of the big SAS events. Um, and we have a bunch of like swag right now from Sastra. Sastra got canceled this year because of the COVID stuff. And so it's just sitting in our office. So we're probably going to start doing some online giveaways and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, long story short, um, we, uh, we have a swag strategy 
Um, it's not taking a ton of our time, but it is one of those things where we try to do things um, at a high level. And that was a, that was one that we ended up, um, you know, putting some time into and, and being as unique as we could, basically. I really respect that. And there's, there's, a, there's a common theme throughout everything you do. If you're going to do it, make sure you do it right and do it well. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, well, Patrick, I've thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining me here. One final question. Um, what are you most excited for, both in business and in, in personal life in the future? Ooh. We're a bit of a worrying time now, but what are you most yeah. excited for? I think there's a silver lining in all of this, which is, and it's, it's very obvious, it's, it's that this is going to pass at some point. Um, there's going to be some things that are permanent and hopefully those, I, I'm assuming that a lot of those things are going to be positive um, that are permanent. But I think that what I'm most excited by is this period in time is forcing us to be good at our jobs. And it's not that we didn't have to be good at our jobs like three, four years ago, but now it's, it's like, hey, we have to be good at our jobs because you know, everything's a bit harder, right? We're not in this like nice market where everyone's just kind of going up and to the right. Um, and I think that for those who were disciplined before, it's going to help them a lot. And for those who weren't as disciplined, and we all weren't as disciplined as we, we should have been, um, you know, it's going to help us like get that discipline and be better entrepreneurs, better executives, better founders coming out of this. And so it's a little bit of like a silver lining on this whole situation. But I think that, um, you know, that it's, it, if you haven't learned that learning is like the number one thing and it's really hard to learn when you're not in crisis, um, even if it's like just kind of having to read something a couple of times, like I think that's, that's the big thing that I'm most excited by. Amazing. Well, Patrick, thank you again for joining me. Where can people get hold of you? Uh, just Patrick at profitable.com. If you want the index data, you want to talk about content, pricing, whatever it is. Um, you know, I do clear my inbox um, more so than once every four weeks. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I'm a big believer in just like evangelizing and educating the market. And so sincerely, if you have a question, we've probably written some content on it and just reach out to me and we can rock from there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, sir. What a fantastic episode that was. I think it might well be my favorite one that I've ever recorded. Patrick just had so much intelligence and knowledge on content, pricing, remote working, just a really smart guy with some great insights. Now, I want to thank you very much for listening to this whole episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did in recording it. Again, I want to quickly say I've got that offer on the Streaco podcast launch, which is 25% off your order if you use the code marketing mashup. If you did enjoy this, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It really does help grow the podcast or send me a tweet at Jay McKinvan. I'd be more than happy to get back to you and have a conversation about anything marketing, content or podcasting. <laughs>